Hi, this is Dalian Orr, and welcome to the Making the Media podcast. We're on season break over the summer as our host, Craig Wilson, is on vacation. While we're gearing up for season three in the autumn, we are re-releasing a few of our favorite episodes that you may have missed the first time around. This time we're hearing from Marowan Williams, from one of the world's preeminent news broadcasters, the BBC in the United Kingdom. We will be back with new episodes in September with our new season, so don't forget to subscribe to get them first in your feed. For now, listen and enjoy. Hi, it's Craig Wilson here, your host for the Making the Media podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Our guest this week is Morrowin Williams, who's the Director of UK Operations for BBC News. She leads a 750-strong team responsible for creative technical news gathering, as well as all news studios in London and Salford at Media City UK. The team is also responsible for editing in London as well. A former journalist herself, she was previously the BBC News' Deputy UK Editor. She is the bridge between the BBC's journalism and technology, so she has a lot on her plate and can provide an informed take on the challenges facing the news industry today. There's a lot to discuss on that front for sure, so let's get to it. And I began by asking Morrowind to outline why she made the move from the editorial to the more technical side of the business. A few years ago, I used to be head of news gathering operations. That's, that's the team that just go out and, and, and gather the news in the field, so not the studio team. And, and a few years ago, I, I made that move into our operations role because I, I was really sort of fascinated by, uh, you know, how we did that. I'd always been a bit techie, but no, I am a journalist by training. You know, I, I've, I've been uh, deputy editor on our regional programmes. I was deputy UK editor for BBC News. I was in charge of a lot of special events, major special events like um, you know, NATO summits. Uh, I, I did Prince, Prince William's wedding, uh, uh, some of Prince Harry's wedding. Um, those sorts of major royal special events have been a, a forte of mine. So there's a lot of you need to know the technology for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just got a bit frustrated with with, you know, the, the, the uh, how how things came to be and and the understanding of of journalism um, by our technical things, it it seemed a little bit siloed and I wanted to bring that together. And I very much see my role as like a translator between what journalism needs to to the technology and what great technology ideas are there for the journalists to exploit. And that's the bit, that's that sweet spot in the middle that I really get excited about, about how I can make a difference because that's what I want to do. I just come to work to make a difference to make it better for our audiences and and that's where I believe you know that the role I do uh, does make a difference. Yeah I think it's really interesting how you link that there to not just what the teams internally do but actually what the audience gets gets at the end because I guess it's, it's a bit of marrying up and understanding better what it is you actually want to achieve as opposed to necessarily knowing which technology you need to achieve it. Absolutely. It's about the end product. And lots of our teams say, 
don't tell me, you know, what kit you want to send on a job. Tell me what you want to do and, and I'll sort the result out for you. I'll sort out how we do that. Uh, and I used to be guilty of it on the planning desk myself. Oh, can we send this truck to so-and-so? Well, what do you want to do? Uh, and, you know, I'd just be because I knew a truck number, I, w- I, I would be saying, uh, giving a sol- I'd be solutionising. Well, uh, we've very much realised that actually tell us what you want to achieve. What's the best result for the audience? We'll work out how to deliver it. So when you look at things at the moment, um, more we've obviously been through a fairly extraordinary last couple of years because of because of COVID. And um, maybe we talk a little bit about that just now, because as I understand it, a lot of your team were actually still coming into the building through the course of all of this, but a lot of people working working remotely. Maybe just talk us through how things went through that period back in you know February, March, I guess, 2020, uh, to where we are now. Yeah, well, it, it all changed. I mean, the majority of my team have to come into the buildings to 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 do their to do their job. Uh, I mean, all the studio teams, the editors. Uh, I mean, some jobs could be done from could be done from home, and where we could, we did, uh, and we supported that. And actually, we supported um, some studio people. You know, some of the Today presenters work from home, but actually, our studio uh, team still had to come in to allow other people to work from home. So, I mean, that was, and and it has been full on and relentless for my team. And, you know, that's been recognised with the RTS, Royal Television Society, gave, gave award to the joint technical teams for all they managed to pull off during the, the, the pandemic. Don't forget, when this happened, people were glued to the news. Uh, and actually, it had a big resurgence in television news, linear television news. People sat around the telly uh, and, and returned to television news. Um, and so we were needed more than ever. And um, people just, our numbers went through the roof. Uh, and, you know, people obviously, I, I would hope, uh, turned to us as a trusted news source to cut through when they needed to know what was happening. So it was really important that our people could come in and do those roles. And what we had to do, Craig, was was really look at our programming because we didn't know where that pandemic was going. We didn't know how many of our staff would be in at those early days. Um, and so we had uh, we worked together with the news board and a, a few of us to look at what streamlining we would put into place when those levels were hit. You know, if we had people out, what we would do. And we, we proactively streamlined some of the programming. Um, and so, so things like Newsnight went into our main news studio. So we had fewer studios on the go. We, we, we just hunkered down a little bit. And, and the Mar show, as it was then, which was in a big studio, that went into our main news studio. The quality of the journalism remained and we broadcast the quality of the journalism and got the stories out to people. But some of the programmes looked a bit different. Uh, and um, similarly, on our language programmes, instead of being in one of the main studios, we, we put them into what's called a, a clip studio, a smaller studio where you only need two people uh, to, to person that studio rather than a full gallery team. And it just meant we got some uh, resilience and we could cruise along at a certain level without it being what I call handbrake accelerator, handbrake accelerator. And that really did as well. And we didn't have to ever go above those levels. Uh, and it was a, I, I, it was a great piece of work that we did. I mean, it was a terrible set of circumstances, of course, that everyone has had to go through. But, but what do you think it actually meant for the way that people were willing to maybe innovate and try different things? 
Well, we absolutely, my team did a lot of innovation. So when the audiences went out of programmes, I mean, we did, we do some uh, audience programmes for the wider BBC. Audiences couldn't come in. So we, uh, um, uh, some of my guys developed, a, you know, a Zoom where the audience could contribute on Zoom called Virtual Audience. Again, that's won an, an industry award uh, because how we brought people together uh, to still have an audience because some of those early programmes, if you remember them, were like, echoey quiet no reaction that's difficult for a presenter uh, and it actually meant you can get audiences from all over the country people who can't normally travel to location could take part in that we also in, in, um, in designed things like remote productions how we work to workflow out so if you normally edit on the road we've got things like called edit caravels with a you know you go into the back of a van it's got an edit suite in in, in the back of it uh, and three people would work in that and uh, a shoot edit camera camera operator person uh, a producer and and uh, the reporter and they would all work together that couldn't happen. So you would have the editor working in, in the, the caravel or they went home or they came into the office. And then on a, a Zoom type workflow, the others would be um, sit around together. And, and actually, one of the um, jobs we did when it was out in a, um, a particularly hostile location, they went out to work on a story uh, uh, in the Middle East, I think. Uh, and then the people that had come together came from three different continents. So they went home to three different continents to edit uh, and edited in that workflow. Um, so we've learned an awful lot. You don't have to be in the same place um, to do things. So a lot of innovation happened. Uh, and and we will keep some of those practices because they're really quite useful. Yeah. Do you think it's also changed people's attitude about what's possible to work in a remote way as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, things people didn't want to try or didn't think would work had to be tried because it's the only way we get things on air. And so it's really, really has it, it, it um, you know, accelerated um, uh, automation. Uh, there were some things we had the capability in our technology to do automation and we had people there doing things when we had to um, uh, take out the vision mixing role from our gallery to allow social distancing. I mean, we hadn't then on our main bulletins or, or our, a lot of our programs haven't had a vision mixer person doing those programs since that pandemic started. Uh, and so we have used um, uh, uh, the learnings from those sorts of things and, and have taken those um, th those chances and, and opportunities and, and thought, you know, we can do things differently. But I think people probably wouldn't have put those forward as ways of working if had it not been for the pandemic. Yeah. What about things like use of the cloud as well? I mean, one of the things that we discussed in the pandemic with a number of people is about how the cloud can enable more remote collaboration. And again, people working together. Is that something that you've also seen an acceleration in the use of? Yeah, because we had to, because um, the, you know, coming into a building with the big on-prem um, you know, big setups that you can only do in a BBC building, that wasn't very useful if you were all of a sudden working from home. We just moved one of our, 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 our visual uh, database, it's, it's an in-house thing called Jupiter, to 
Jupiter Cloud, uh, a version. And, and we really worked at that. It had literally just come in and we worked at that to improve that uh, and, and pulled its timescale forward to, to improve that. Uh, and that's been a big success. That's allowed a, a lot of it. Uh, our planning and deployment tool, that was already a, a, a cloud-based um, thing. So, you know, it's and anything that we had, there were some still some ones for digital that you had to come in to do. Um, but anything we're looking at in future, we would hope to be cloud-based. So so the old anytime, any place, anywhere saying um, could be true that, you know, if anything like this happened again, that we're, we're future-proofed. And, and I guess a, a, a sort of follow-on from that is if, if, if um, you're st- storing material and accessing through cloud-based tools, then the role of web-based tools becomes much more significant and important as well. Yeah, yeah. And actually, our planning and deployment tool is web-based. So more web-based tools as well. Absolutely. It has got to be the way forward. So when you look at things at the, at the moment and, and looking across the, the, the landscape, what, what do you see are the sort of key challenges facing the sort of news gathering business at the moment? What, 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 from your perspective, if you're looking for an issue that you want to, to solve or make things better, what do you think the key thing is? Well, I mean, we've done a lot of it with uh, with this. We're, we're moving to a more connected cameras uh, uh, where we our material won't need a particular feed point to get back into the building or get round. So that, uh, again, will be an advantage. So I suspect, actually, Craig, sustainability will be one of our uh, is one of our key drivers next. How do we make our fleets and our teams greener? And we're really actively looking at that now. When we come up for vehicle replacement, you know, it's very much, you know, can, can we do an uh, electric vehicle workflow? Really, really want to do that. Um, can any of our big trucks, we're, we're trying to either get their generators uh, with, uh, you know, off diesel and retrofitting, things like that. Very much uh, looking at all those workflows to see how we can um, be greener in future while being able to get to places quickly, um, not having to stop and, uh, uh, you know, necessarily recharge uh, because, you know, we're, we're in a news business. We need to get to places quickly. So you just got to look at things like, you know, uh, charging a, a distance and how far you can get, things like that. So when we hit that sweet spot, we'll hopefully be good to go on something. Yeah, we, we've actually done a podcast with the team from behind the We Are Albert initiative yeah. uh, talking about them. And I think one of the other things about that is it potentially opens up other opportunities, because one thing that you may do is perhaps look to hire more in-location staff, as yeah. opposed to sending people to go and do that as well. So I think it's actually something, well, there are a lot of people who look at the, the kind of sustainability targets and think things like, if I can't charge up my vehicle to get there, how do we cover it? It's actually about thinking about trying to do things perhaps in a slightly different way. Yeah. And we had a, a recent interview in Germany. Uh, we were looking at flying somebody out there. And we, in the end, we hired a, 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 a German freelance to do it because actually, uh, you know, by the time you've paid for the flights and the sustainability element of it, it was just e- easier to do. We won't do that on all stories. I mean, there are things, there's some like the, you know, the the investigations that we do, we'll always want to to go and fly on. But if it's a simple, straightforward interview that we could probably do, we might, we might look at a lot more of that. And one of the things that the BBC does is it covers a huge amount of ground. There's lots and lots of distribution points um, as well, Morvan. It's not, it's not just about um, the sort of broadcast and, and the on-air. So what kind of challenges does, does that try to, to face in terms of distributing content to so many different outlets? 
well it's versioning for us in my department it, it's so you've got a shoot edit that's working on a story uh, and so we had the uh, Djokovic interview uh, last week I think it was a few weeks ago and um, and it was um, uh, how do you get that out for all those outlets it was a big exclusive for the BBC and um, not only was it a BBC one program but it needed to go on radio television online but lots of versions online as well that you know you know how how, how many outlets there and they all have a certain different look. So versioning it for us um, of distribution, that's that's our biggest challenge in my department. Clearly, BBC has, has distribution issues uh, elsewhere, some of which are done by very big old transmitters. Um, but, but certainly in my team, versioning takes up an awful lot of time uh, and uh, to get those versions right for the audiences who want to interact with it on that platform. Um, so one size does not fit all. Um, we've we know that we have learned that uh, and people if you just put a big television package online it doesn't work it just does not work so we'll we're experimenting with ways when maybe you could cut something for the television that that would work online as well but you've just got to accept there are various uh, outlets that will need a bespoke cut and for that kind of thing is that the, the kind of thing that you begin to look at where AI can play a role, or is it still the case of dedicated teams need to look at the different versions that are actually being produced? I think there are there is technology out there that can definitely help us on that, uh, and in some cases is helping us on that. There, are, you know, various uh, edit tools that can sort of replicate uh, different versions. So we're looking at we're looking at all that, and you know, AI is playing a, a great part of the last general election. So you know, a few years ago, um, we took um, facts and and um, uh, we were able to produce little you know two or three sentences on what had happened in each count using uh you know artificial intelligence to put to put the facts together in a format uh to to do that with it with automation yeah i mean that's the kind of thing obviously the financial industry has been doing for quite a long time you know you get company reports come out and they yeah. automatically generate reports from there so i think it's an interesting area of, of sort of future development um, as well and um, what about things like story-centric workflows i guess that that kind of feeds back into that versioning conversation as well is story-centric really at the heart of what you're trying to trying to do now yeah, I mean, massive change in, in BBC News in the last year. Um, our uh, initiative called Modernising BBC News has really taken, uh, for the biggest, you know, changes in the last 20 or 30 years, really, for BBC News, and has looked at the way we gather uh, our stories uh, and created story teams. So, as you're saying, story-centric around expertise, so learning and identity, um, culture, um, uh, money and work in business, uh, and various teams and actually um, spread them throughout the UK as well. So our learning and identity team will be based in Leeds. Uh, our climate and science will be based in Cardiff, for instance. Um, so we, we've centred around those uh, areas and, and actually we threw the staffing of it all up and threw everybody into BBC News in a big pot and say, who wants to uh, apply for what? And, and so it really is a complete new team. At the heart of that is a commissioning uh, structure, which looks at um, stories that uh, people are bidding for uh, 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 or, or are suggesting, and uh, it has to have a certain amount of buy-in. So people just don't go off and make stories. It, it's all approved uh, at a certain point. 
But the story centric uh, is one where, you know, we do like to think we have expertise at the BBC uh, and, and, you know, that's what people turn to us for, the explanation of stories. Uh, and that's been protected very much by this uh, story based um, uh, way of reorganising ourselves. I think as well with something like story centric is that the, the people recognize that it has to be a tailored version depending on what what it is that you're that you're going to do that you can still produce interesting and engaging content but you can actually version it perhaps for different regions or perhaps for different um, areas of the of the country where in essence it's the same story but tailored in a slightly different way and from yeah. an efficiency perspective it's actually a much more efficient way of delivering content as well Yes, uh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, back to our earlier point, you know, we have an in-house tool that re-versions, does the language for each, we've got, you know, 26 uh, language services and can re-version one television piece with the the straps on for for different versions. But it's important to recognise that different audiences will want different things and to take elements out of maybe a piece and just to, you know, maybe if there's an example of, uh, I don't know, revolutionary hip surgery maybe the person you know just take it from the person's story of the person that will benefit from the hip surgery rather than a traditional television package of um here's an example here's a doctor here's the cure here's the science lab uh you know here's the piece to camera that that's a very traditional way you can do it just through the story of of the person maybe and and that's quite an appealing way particularly for our digital audiences we talked about web-based tools, but the other aspect I was going to ask around is on mobile tools and what people are looking to do with phones. Is that something that, that's kind of key to the way that news is being t- delivered and, and really communicated now? So gathering by mobile has been something, you know, I've been very you know involved in. We used to have uh, a team called uh, Mobile Journalism and Innovation, but actually we decided it's so part of what we do all the time. We've con- changed it to connectivity innovation now uh, because we really feel it's like day to day what we do. So we... It's always interesting, isn't it, ever the challenge of, uh, you know, we've got some very highly skilled camera operators who work with big cameras. Uh, and, and so a few years ago, we had a, a pilot where we asked them to put down their big cameras. And we gave them the top end uh, uh, smartphone and uh, asked them to go away and see what they could do with that. And it was quite some years ago. And we remember it, I remember particularly, it was the death of Stephen Hawking and our camera person went round, was doing an end of programme package with what, what Stephen Hawking had meant to young people. So he went to a science fair and he captured it all on mobile. And the piece was brilliant because you know how it is when you get young people on, on with a big camera and they all act around in the background. Well, they just all interacted in a perfectly normal way because they're used to having a mobile phone in their face. And so it was nothing different to them. And we got a really good piece. And not only that, that when that went, we have a debrief after the six o'clock news. When we told the presenter, because we didn't tell them it was shot and edited when it was shot on mobile, um, they nearly, nearly fell off the chair. And the real tribute to that was it then ended up on the 10 o'clock news without a single change in it. And normally when people think, oh, yeah, well, oh, well now I found out it was on mobile, we'll, we'll drop it. But they didn't. And we've built on that. And particularly our colleagues in the English regions have, are doing a lot of work uh, in the mobile area. We've got a great in-house tool that that can send material in. So on my phone here now, if, if there was a 
something newsworthy. I could I, I could literally go onto that app. I've got it, you know, right in a key position on my phone and it knows it's Morrowind Williams's uh, phone. I, it, it, it geolocates me and it goes in straight into the servers. And so if I took some picture now, I'd just put a slug on it. Uh, and and then it would go straight into the servers. So we've really built on this mobile technology. Uh, and, um, we, you know, everybody has a, a, a smartphone, a BBC smartphone, uh, and and we're going to be making more films, I think, on them in, in the future. And we are doing some training in that area as well. Yeah, I think there's an intimacy about doing something on a mobile phone that is different from turning up with a crew, even if it's a, well, just a one-person crew, you know, one-man band or one-woman band who turns out to, 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 to shoot things, there is something different about just having a phone and having a conversation. And if you've got somebody that's really upset, and we, we have to interview people who have seen, you know, tragic things or have had tragedies in their lives, and, and if you're there with a big camera, it can make them very nervous. And so, whereas I say, mobile phones in your face is all part of every everybody's daily life these days uh, and so they actually you you get a better interview because the person's a little bit more relaxed and it's less of an ordeal for them and that's that's important for people to make people feel at their ease yeah i also think there's another aspect to not just the mobile um uh, you know food, uh, the filming of things but also the fact that we have been able to interview many more people now because of things like zoom and teams you and i are speaking just now on um, on on zoom mormon um it's also slightly changed the nature of some of the programming as well because you get people on that you yes. probably wouldn't have got on before as well yeah i mean our late night program news night um uh, had to go to um, guests all appearing remotely because we couldn't have people in the studio uh and it 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 just meant the diversity of guests uh, whereas it doesn't look as great it's not as great an interview in some cases is if you've got somebody next to you but actually you could get lots more people on that don't have to find the way at 10 30 at night into a bbc studio or or to get a truck to them or a, a connected backpack camera or whatever uh, and so and maybe people with you know it might be single parents who, who had got childcare responsibilities who couldn't get out and they would say well you know what i i, I can't do your interview for you or people that lived a very long way away and all of a sudden they can now get on. And I think that will stay. Uh, we are more prepared and set up now to be able to do those interviews um, that way. Although I know the programmes are really looking forward to, to getting people back into the studios properly. But it means it doesn't preclude a guest. Um, one slightly different aspect, to Morwen, that I know you're very interested in is about mentoring. Um, so we've we've already done an episode with with Rise, and I know that 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 you're part of that as well, and and other mentoring schemes. So I think one question I wanted to ask is, I think it's obvious what the people who are being mentored get from that kind of scheme, but I'm interested in what you feel that you get out from doing mentoring in the first place. Well, it's all sorts of things, Greg. You know, I, I'm, I'm going into schools as well and school visits. I always learn something. And, and you know, you, you're never too old to stop learning. And, and, and you know, just going into the the schools, I remember. And and I remember just saying, so where do you get your news from? Do you watch the, the you know, nobody put the hand up, you know, where and, you know, just finding out how kids consume the news uh, it was useful from school visits for mentoring. I, I just, you know, I, I really enjoy doing that because 
I get I get to find out, you know, new ways of working, different trends, different aspects. I don't always particularly mentor people who are doing a, a job similar to mine. It might be slightly different. And so I find out, uh, you know, lots, lots more about that sort of thing. My RISE mentee at the moment um, works in product for ITV. And, you know, she I'm learning things from her. So it's very it is exciting to get something be giving something back, but also learning as well. And I really enjoy the conversations that that we have. Uh, another rise, a uh, couple of rise mentees. They've all done very different jobs to me, and I've learned I've learned from them from them all. So a couple of final things, really, Morwen. Um, so we talked earlier on a lot of people, you know, still being in. A lot of people, of course, working remotely. You know, I don't think anyone really knows what that sort of hybrid model ultimately is is going to be like. So I'm interested on on your thoughts on how you try and keep that sense of team, I guess, um, in an an operation where you're perhaps not seeing people as often as you you would have been beforehand. How do you try try to do things like that? Well, I mean, we've got a great management team and and they flip flop between who's in. So our operations managers or, or, or our team leaders, uh, you know, our location managers that they see the teams regularly. So that's, there's always somebody there to, to, to see uh, the team. I'm personally in two or three days a week, uh, at, but I do a lot of Zoom calls as well with with people. So I do think, you know, during the pandemic, it did feel like we came together as a team because, you know, we had the big Previously, my staff meetings, I'd booked a room and, you know, about 25 or 30 people could turn up out of 750. Uh, you know, I was regularly getting more than 100 people. If you consider how many programmes I've got on air, that, that's quite a lot of people who are busy at any one point, uh, you know, people on days off and that sort of thing. But it really brought us together. And I'm not going to stop doing that. I am going to keep doing those monthly, certainly monthly meetings for, for all staff where we just call it the all staff catch up. And, and if we've got people to come on and tell us things about what the latest COVID is, I'll get a guest on. Uh, but but otherwise, we'll, we'll just catch up and, and, and talk about things. So I think there is a sense of team. It did bring people together. There was a little bit of a sense of I'm coming into the building all the time and some people are staying at home. Uh, and we had to work through that because I think everybody just automatically assumed uh, of a certain, the unusual thing was working at home. Actually, you know, don't forget there's people here coming in on public transport and, and you know, they would say risking their health potentially when we didn't know very much about uh, you know how it was transmitted uh, coming into the building to do that and we we had to make sure that was recognized when we were talked about you know have people got the right chairs at home there were people you know coming in day in day out uh, and night in night out to do our to do our work so um that that was uh, you know that was an important difference to recognize yeah, it certainly has been an extraordinary period more and there's no no doubt about that uh, so more as you know there is one final question i ask everyone on the podcast so i will ask it to you uh, what is it if anything that keeps you awake at night well, uh, yeah, it is a good question, Craig. I, d- I don't know. I sort of, my mantra is I come to work to make a difference. So I need to keep coming to work to make a difference. And, you know, have I done the right thing? Keeps me awake at night. Did I do the right thing today? Uh, uh, it it um, The days are so long, it doesn't always keep me awake. Uh, and then hopefully it quickly moves into, an, and when can I get out on my bike next? So that's, those are the things I worry about. 
Thanks to Morwin for sharing her views, and as a keen runner myself, I totally get how she enjoys her relaxing time out on her bike, away from the day-to-day -day challenges. What do you think of what Morrowin had to say? Let us know. We're always keen to discover your views. Email us. We are makingthemedia at avid.com or on social. I am Craig AW1969 on both Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget to like, leave a review and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Check out the show notes for more information on lots of the topics we discussed, from story-centric ways of working to digital versioning and more. That's all from this episode. Thanks to our producer, Matt Diggs. Thanks to Morrowind for taking the time to talk with us. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. Join me, Craig Wilson, next time for more in-depth chat about making the media. Making the media.